Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, Colossians chapter two. You got your Bible, make your way over there. As you're making your way there, man, I wanna celebrate something. I want our our whole church to celebrate what God is doing up at our Mercy Northeast campus right now. Um, Two weeks ago, Mercy Northeast had its largest attendance ever on a Sunday morning, and last week was even higher than that. Um, Praise God for what he's doing there. Here's why I get so amped about that, y'all. Because I get stories, and I get to hear them, and I wanna share them uh, of people that, there's a guy that sends me an email, he says, Hey man, you know, as part of my discipleship plan, I was like, I'm going to start talking about my faith with a friend. He starts talking with his friend and his friend is one of those that came to church for the first time ever, um, coming last weekend to church. You know what I mean? Uh, we've got right now like a hundred college students up at a college conference. Many of them that are at UNC Charlotte, also, uh, over at Queens and at Wingate and several other, even Johnson and Wales, several other places. But man, what we're seeing is when we talk about attendance, we're talking about people taking next steps towards following Jesus. Uh, We got two baptisms happening at Mercy Northeast today. Y'all, that's the stuff that we get excited about. We expect and celebrate life change around here, and I'm pumped for it. On to our sermon. Uh, We've been titling this series, we've themed this series in Colossians, Jesus Before All Things. Comes out of chapter one where, you know, he's going on this litany we looked at a few weeks ago where the apostle Paul, our writer, says that Jesus is before all things. That's both where he exists in time, but also where he exists in priority in our hearts. And he even says he has come so that he would have first place in everything. And so that's what we've been talking about, how worthy he is of him being first place in everything in our lives. But at the same time, Sometimes it's so easy for us to put him just among all things instead of first place. And the underlying premise is when we put him first place, we flourish because we're made by him and we're made for him. What we're trying to do as a church is just, uh, I've showed you this each week and I'll keep it in front of you. You haven't gotten one yet. It's just called My Discipleship Plan for 2024. All this is trying to do, we're working at it in community group, is just help each one of us to work together to put Jesus first before all things. And God's calling each one of us to take a next step, whatever that is, to put Christ first. Maybe it's like I was just talking about, sharing your faith with your friends. Maybe it's stepping into ministry here in the church. Maybe it's getting baptized, whatever it is. God's calling us to take a next step. This week uh, in your groups, you're gonna be talking about serving others. Man, what a Christ-like step to take. Whether that's in ministry, whether that's in your home, whatever it is, let's just take a next step. Because today we're talking about new life versus old life. And man, what better way to walk in that new life power than serving others like Christ, all right? Moving into our sermon today, I want you to look at verse 20 of our passage in Colossians chapter two. We're gonna cover uh, the whole chapter And I want you to start in verse 20, because it's going to be the question that kind of guides where we're going and guides the point of this passage, right? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, if 
you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why, why, why do you still live as if you still belonged to the world? Like if you actually died with Christ, and if you're new to church, we'll unpack that language here in a bit. But in short, if, if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, if you're a Christian, you've made him Lord of your life, if you have received the new life he's given you, why do we still live like we're in our old lives? I don't know about you, but that is a very relatable question to my experience as a Christian. So I feel like a lot of Christians find their walk with God to be a little less of a, um, if you think like a, I don't know, an X, Y axis chart, and then your spiritual growth is supposed to be like, just kind of steadily up and to the right, you know? A lot of us don't feel like that's our spiritual growth at all. In fact, our life with Christ is a little bit more like a seesaw a lot of times. You guys know what it, I haven't seen them on playgrounds recently, but y'all, some of y'all know. If you're an adult, you know what a seesaw is. Uh, the joker where you go up and down, and when you go down, oh, you go down too fast, you remember it your whole life. Okay, it's painful when you hit that ground, right? And a lot of Christians feel like their spiritual life is kind of like that. Like when I'm doing well, I'm up riding high, but then I kind of put Jesus, he's no longer first above all things. He's just kind of among all things, or maybe I've forgotten him entirely, right? And back down we go, and then I jump up again and down and up, and this is our life. And all this time while we're up and down with God, we got a world around us crying out for something to hope in, that a different day might be possible for them, we have the hope of the gospel, but our lives demonstrate temporary change, and then back down we go. Temporary change, not lasting change. Why would people around us put our hope in a gospel that sees only temporary change? Why would they want to get on that seesaw? And I know we don't want it either, because it's exhausting. The seesaw spiritual life is an exhausting, frustrating life. So we're going to talk after and look at Paul's question, why do we keep going back to the old life? And to help us, we got to deal with, you look at that verse, we got to deal with what Paul calls the elements of the world. The elements. And when he says elements, listen, don't think like weird crystals from the cones of Dunshire or something like that, okay? That's what we're talking about. Think more like, uh, like a spiritual periodic table. The elements of this world that he talks about in verse 20 are the foundational building blocks of a world that has rejected God. Vanity, lust, Greed, pride, wrath, sloth. And the reason many Christians struggle to keep Jesus first and to see lasting change is because the elements of this world have roots that reach far deeper into our hearts than we realize. Because what happens is we, we become Christians and without realizing it, we bring the elements of the world into our relationship with God like carry-on luggage. Without realizing it, we practice a form of Christianity where we raise our hands to Jesus, but our feet are still rooted in the elements of this world. And the element we're going to see today in our passage is pride. Now, depending on what voices you listen to, this is one of those words that maybe a generation or two ago we didn't have to define, but now we do. Um, when I say pride, you might think of agenda in our current culture. You may think of positive mental health. I don't know, you might think of a group of lions, okay? I don't know what you might think of, but this word, this idea has been around, of course, since the time of scripture. Pride is simply giving ourselves credit for something God has done, and an easy way to say it is, pride says, look at me. Now, let me say this. <laughs> pride says, look at me, and it does so two ways. Sometimes it's, look at me, how awesome I am. But others of you, 
who are thinking, oh, well, this sermon's not for me because I'm garbage. That's also pride. That says, look at how terrible I am. Both how wonderful and how terrible I am are focused on you. It's pride. So we're, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that, whether that's because you're self-exalting or self-loathing, pride is still at the source of that. And we're going to talk about how we change our sight, and that's getting to the end of our sermon. Uh, so here's what happens, okay? In this um, book, if you're newer to the Bible, this book that we're reading, this letter, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's making kind of like a, a series of logical arguments and one builds on the next, okay? It's like this proposition, propositional truth then builds on to the next one, right? That's how this works. This is different from, say, if we were in Genesis and I was preaching through a narrative where it's kind of we're going to tell the whole story and see what the character of God through the story and what he has for us. And I say that because this passage is going to have four movements that build logically on each other. And I want you to hang in there with me, okay? Here's how our sermon's going to go. It's four parts to it as we walk through this passage. The first is a, a really quick heart check. The Apostle Paul is going to basically take our vital signs, our spiritual vital signs, with a basic concept that reveals where are we really with God when it comes to this pride stuff. Second thing's going to happen is that he's going to flip and he's going to show us what God did for us. Really important. Here's why. Because the Christian life is not lived for salvation, but from salvation. It's not lived for acceptance from God, but from acceptance in Jesus. And why that's so important is it's going to reveal to us there is no room, no logical room for pride in our lives. All right? Then the third movement is, okay, well, if that's true, why are we still prideful? Paul's question in verse 20, that's where we're going to get underneath it and get to the heart. And lastly, we'll see how we fight against pride so that we can get off the seesaw entirely and walk with Jesus, all right? Pretty simple, I hope. A quick heart check, what God did for us, why we're so prideful even after all that, and then how we take some next steps, okay? Get off the seesaw. Start in verse six. You guys ready? Yes. Let's get it. All right. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and check this, overflowing with gratitude. What you're seeing right out of the gate is that you haven't earned Christ as Lord. See that? Just as you have earned, nope, just as you have what? Received Christ Jesus as Lord. And the thing is, guys, we are to continue in Christ in the same way we started. When we started, our salvation depends entirely on Jesus but then here's where we mess up. We stop depending on Jesus and we start relying on ourselves. It's like, all right, we made it into the Christian house. Thanks Jesus for opening the door, but I've got it from here. No, you don't. And pride comes when we focus on our own performance there in the Christian house. Look at me, how great I'm doing, or man, look how terrible I am, right? The seesaw. Right? And Paul is reminding them, look, the way to get away from that is you got to stay familiar with the gospel. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. And a sign that he gives us, as I told you, he's taking our vitals, right? The sign that he gives us that we are staying rooted and built up in him is that you are overflowing with gratitude. A sign you're growing in your walk with Jesus is gratitude. See, here's the thing, guys. Pride 
is a hidden disposition of the heart. The visible emotion that grows out of pride is entitlement. You feel entitled to God's praise or man's praise when it goes well, and you feel like you're not worthy of anything when it goes poorly, right? But when you understand the gospel, the hidden disposition of the heart changes to humility. He did it all. And then the visible emotion that comes out of that is gratitude. You're thankful a lot because you got a lot to be thankful for. Okay, and so as I've talked about this, kind of like a checking your vitals, can this be kind of an inventory for you this week? Are you a thankful person? Are you, in the words of Paul here, overflowing with gratitude? I feel like, just for what it's worth, as your pastors have been studying week in, week out and preaching through Colossians, the need for and the call for thankfulness keeps coming up. I believe that's God doing this for us. He's like, I know I need this as your pastor. I get so focused so often. Oh man, what does Mercy Church need? Look at how awesome Mercy Church is. And man, what can happen in my heart is the humility that comes from the gospel that should be expressed outwardly as thankfulness for what God is doing among us gets shoved out and replaced by, look how awesome we are. Here's what we deserve. Lord, you owe us. Come on, Lord, look at us. Give us whatever. And my prayer request becomes more of a demand of God for what he owes us. It's crazy, right? Look at us. And I got to recalibrate. God doesn't owe me anything. Why am I feeling entitled? Because I'm proud. Because I think I've done something and I've forgotten that all I have is a gift. And if I can begin my day from a place of humility, remembering what Jesus has done for me, what I've received instead of what I've achieved, and then let gratitude flow out from that, y'all, I'm telling you, that is a reality-shifting perspective to walk through life with, of what God has done for me instead of what I have done. He keeps going on this. Be careful, he says, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ, the other pitted against each other. Verse nine, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily, not in you, in Christ. Throughout this letter, he's doing so much work to show them just how awesome Jesus is, how worthy he is. And he knows, he knows, he knows how easy it is for the human heart to be deceived. Y'all, there's something that was happening at the time in the Colossian church where people are trying to, there's a a group of people that were trying to teach this distorted version of Christianity where it's based more on your performance than on Christ's performance. And at its root is pride, taking credit for what God did. Look at me. Trying to put a human back in, tr- in control of their destiny instead of God. And what Paul knows, I'm gonna tell you this, the most dangerous heresies are the ones that are just a little off. Like they look holy, they know the Christian language, probably pull some Bible verses, but ultimately what you can always tell why they're heretical is they're diverting glory from God and putting it on people. And Paul drives home how crazy it is to do that as a Christian because the entire fullness of God dwells in Jesus. In other words, he's God, you're not. How silly to try and take credit for anything he has done, but we do it. We do it, right? And so that's that vital sign check is if you are overflowing, if you're not overflowing with gratitude, it's a check to go back and see, man, what's underneath? 
Is it humility or is it actually humility from the gospels being replaced by pride? And then what he does next, I told you part two, like with the logical progression, it's this like combo knockout punch of what God did for us in Jesus. It is awesome. Uh, Look, verses 10 through 15 are a whole sermon series. Okay. I mean, they're amazing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 10 through 15 all at once. And then I'm just going to kind of like an avalanche, just give you all the promises that are in here of what God did for us. Talk about a couple of them. Keep going. All right. Here it comes. He says, and you have been filled by him. You, you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, what did he do? He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased, he keeps going, He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And then he keeps going. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So good. Like I said, whole sermon series there. So let me give you a way to hang on to what he just said. This is the what God did for us part of the message, part of the passage. And the reason it's so powerful, it's meant to be worshipful. It's like, it's like Paul wants them to worship their way away from pride by redirecting their eyes onto Jesus. And here's the, here are the promises, what God did for us. Verse 10, God came to live with us, came to live with us and in us. Like if you're a Christian, God dwells in you. Then verses 11 through 13, God gave us new life. The old you is dead. You have new life in Christ. Not only that, God paid for and forgave all our sins, verses 13 and 14. And not only that, God gave us, Christian, you have victory over Satan, sin, and even death itself. I'm going to let that sit there for a minute so you can write them down or just worship, whatever you want to do. I want to say, I want to riff on a couple of these. Um, Verse 10 is a callback to last week where Paul said the, the mystery that's just hard to explain is that God now dwells in you. Jesus told us it would happen in John 14. He said the spirit would come after he ascends to go and be with the father. And in every believer, this would look like God guiding us, comforting us, giving us security and peace, convicting us of sin, directing us back towards his ways, shaping us day after day into who we are created to be. God lives in you. And that thing, if you're a little bit confused, as I was talking about circumcision, uh, and if you're like, what is that? That's a great question for you and your parents to discuss um, later. But he he relates it to baptism. And without a whole lot of theological rabbit trail, here's what he's saying. In the Old Testament, the way people were admitted into the people of God was through the physical act of circumcision, which is a permanent change symbolizing your new identity and that you belong to a new community. And Paul says for Christians, we have a different sign. Not one of external flesh, but one of internal heart. God circumcises or permanently changes our hearts. And then the outward sign of that inward change is baptism. Like I said, we've got a couple of baptisms happening today at our Northeast campus. Here's what happens. 
Somebody goes under the water in symbolism of verse 12 that we are buried with him in baptism. But in case you don't know, um, spoiler alert, we do bring them back up out of the water, okay? They don't stay in there. That would be horrible, right? We bring them back up out of the water symbolizing that they have new life in Christ, just as Christ gets out of the grave. So instead of circumcision, baptism is your mark of entrance into the people of God. So should you get baptized? Well, if you've received salvation in Christ, yes. Not to earn salvation, but to profess it. Our prayer is that we see more people baptized this year than last year. That your friend, your classmate, your roommate, your spouse, your coworker, who's far from God, whoever that is, but close to you, will take their next step first in receiving salvation and then professing that salvation through baptism. Maybe that's your next step as well. I was talking uh, this week through this whole idea and Pastor Brett, our student pastor, was telling me that um, you know, growing up, he was baptized at about seven years old. His parents encouraged it. He thought he was doing the right thing, but for him, it wasn't a sign of any kind of heart change. He was just kind of doing what he was told to do or whatever. And he never really followed the Lord. There's no fruit in his life. In fact, he started running hard against the Lord. And at 20, he became a Christian. And then he took the next step of baptism, actually right here at Mercy Church. He was a college student over at UNC Charlotte at the time. Maybe that's your next step. I can't talk any more about that in this sermon, but our pastoral team would love to talk with you about it. All of these promises in this section are all there to say very clearly, look at God. Look at what he did for us. Look at him. New life, forgiveness, presence, victory. God did that. And with our eyes fixed on him and how awesome he is, now we can talk about that question. Why do we live prideful lives? Because see, if you don't have your heart and mind fixed on who he is and all that he did for you, you won't be able to really root out what's going on with this prideful life. You need pride to be absurd in order to even try and deal with it. And so you got to spend that time first looking at Jesus. And that's why Paul does that. But then he goes into it. Verse 16. Therefore, therefore, of course, it's all those promises. Your salvation has been accomplished. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Guys, with pride comes judgment. There was something happening in the Colossian church where your religious performance was becoming the measuring stick for you instead of God's performance. And what's happening is some in the church are judging the quality of one's faith based on their diet, on whether or not they observe all the festivals, or even the manner in which they observe the Sabbath day. Like, you know, we're all Christians. You can just hear it. We're all Christians. But if you really want to be a good Christian... Don't eat that meat, sacrificed idols. If you really want to be a good Christian, you need, you need to come to all the festivals. If you really want to be a good Christian, you got to be really strict about the Sabbath day. Now, what's wrong with this stuff? It's not that all these things are bad, especially the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a wonderful gift from God woven into the fabric of the created order. You will flourish when you observe the Sabbath. It's not that they're bad. It's that judging one another by them will draw us away from their purpose. These things are supposed to point us to Jesus. Jesus is supposed to get the credit. Remember our, our definition of pride, look at me, taking credit for something God has done. When we take credit for how we do on the Sabbath, whether we're doing great or poorly, we rob Jesus of the glory and honor due to him. And that's verse 17. 
These are a shadow. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Take the Sabbath. Jesus says man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. The author of Hebrews says the whole purpose of the Sabbath day was to point us to the Sabbath God who would bring eternal Sabbath to us in the form of Jesus. In other words, we find ultimate rest not in a day of the week, but in a person. The day is the shadow of the person. So we're not to judge one another on our adherence to the Sabbath because God says Sabbath is a shadow. Shadows aren't tangible. They're images without substance. The Sabbath is meant to give credit to Jesus, to point us to Jesus, and we find our rest in him. We rest in him. A couple more examples, he says, of how they were doing this. He says, let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. They don't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. I love that word inflated at the end of 18, because that's what pride does. You judge others, and when things go well, you get inflated, right? Where when I say well, I mean when you perform better than those around you by whatever standard you set up. It makes you feel bigger than you are. Someone judging your worth or value by performance, you feel like you can control it, and so your self gets inflated. And they're forgetting that Jesus is the head of the body that is the church. He's the one that holds it all together. He's our means of growing. Jesus says himself, different metaphor, John 15. He is the vine, we are the branches. Abide in him, then we bear fruit. Again, it's not that the religious practices are wrong. In fact, God calls us. You read the New Testament. He calls us to fast and pray. Calls us to give our money to the church so that the gospel can go forward. Calls us to serve brothers and sisters in the church. Calls us to seek justice for the oppressed. Calls us to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the beginning and the end of these practices must be Jesus. If Jesus is not the beginning and the end of your Christian faith, by beginning I mean his work on the cross motivates your obedience. By the end I mean his presence in your life and his name exalted through your life. If he's not the beginning and the end, this will be your faith. It'll be a seesaw. When you perform well, you're up. But when you sin, you come crashing down. You gotta get off the seesaw. And so he says, Our question, verse 20, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why? Why do you still live as you belong to the world? Now we arrive, part three of our sermon, our question. Why still live like the old life? It's kind of like a butterfly would never crawl on the ground like a caterpillar again. It's a butterfly. Now I ain't going back to doing caterpillar things. Paul's using logic to point out it can't be rational thinking that's leading people back into self-justification through religion. You're dead to that. Why go back to it? Why go back to performance-based life that takes credit away from Jesus and puts it onto you? All right, let me tell you why. See, before you were a Christian, let me talk to Christians. Before you were a Christian, you had to find some way to justify your self-worth. Like some sense of value, that you were worthy of being loved, of being cared about. You had to validate yourself. And the only way to do that is to 
compare yourself to others, either others in your life or others that aren't even in your own personal life, but they're out there and you want it to be like them. I mean, y'all, our culture has rating systems for literally everything, right? You can go on and you can go on to Google Maps right now and rate your dentist. You know what I mean? Like four stars, it would have been five, but no prize box kind of thing. And you can leave that review there and rate them. Y'all, we, so what ends up happening? We compare everything, our bodies, our shopping carts, our cars, our shoes, our families. And it's exhausting to try and constantly measure up. Even more than that, we, even more than we want our friends around us to like us, we want to get likes from total strangers to get that dopamine hit for just a minute to feel worthy. And when you, maybe if you finally do make it to where you are getting all that validation, it is exhausting to maintain. Exhausting. That's self-justification. I, myself, justify why I am valuable to the greater world. And it's exhausting. And usually it crumbles because it's too heavy for you to carry. And pride, that's pride, the foundational element of the world that has rejected God. But then here's what happens, Christian. We hear the gospel. And into this awful, like heavy load that we've been carrying, we hear the gospel. It's this fresh oasis in the desert of self-justification. Jesus says, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. Fresh water. He says, yes, you are sinful. You do mess up. You've been trying to earn love and acceptance, achieve love and acceptance, and you can't achieve love and acceptance from the one you need it most from, and that's God. And God says, listen, you are worthy, but not because of how you perform, but because of how Christ performed on your behalf. God says you're worthy because Jesus made you worthy. And then what happens when we receive that gospel news Self-justification gets shattered. We lived, I mean, I'm t- I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, it was, li- I'll never forget that moment, 13 years old. It was like a mantle was lifted off of my shoulders, the need to please and get people's approval. And I could have run a marathon right then and there. It's like, what relief? But then here's what happens. We underestimate just how deep that need for self-justification was rooted down in our souls. And over time, We embed ourselves into Christianity and into the church, and we begin comparing our spirituality to that of other Christians. Before Jesus, we compared our social lives to others. Now we compare our prayer lives to others. We used to compare pop culture knowledge. Now we compare Bible knowledge, right? Used to compare how attractive your clothing made you, but now it's how modest slash stylish your clothing makes you, right? (laughs) We compare everything, how we date, how we parent, what our marriages are like, everything. And what we don't realize is the same element, pride, it never left. It just found some church clothes. We're still trying to achieve our salvation, achieve our acceptance when we are meant to receive that acceptance. So Paul calls it out. He says, why do you submit to regulations Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a, look at this, a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. 
These religious standards imposed by humans and prideful attempts to be superior to one another, they sound good. I imagine there in the city of Colossae, several notable people have endorsed the back of whatever this book is, but they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. If Jesus is not the beginning and end of these practices, even the strictest practice is not going to deal with the element of this world rooted down deep in your soul. It's going to make you appear like you got your life together for a little while until those elements overwhelm you again, break through again. They're too much to bear for you again. So what will set us free? Well, now we arrive at the last part of our message and we're actually going to dip over into chapter three, verse one, how you fight against pride in your life. It's Colossians three, verse one. If you have been raised with Christ, why'd you do all those things? If you have been raised with Christ, here's your action step. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You want to know how to fight against pride in your life? You seek the things above where Christ is seated. Okay. If you've been around mercy for a few years, I'm, I'm going to review something that I've told you before. Uh, but, and if you're newer, well, you're going to hear it for the first time. And even if you've been around for a while, I need to hear old truths repeated anyways. I need it this week. There's an old Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers. I've got, I'm a, my descendants are, or my ancestors are Scottish, right? So I love Scottish stuff. So this is one just from my family to you. Okay. Here's the deal. Old guy named Thomas Chalmers, he wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That was the premises back when book titles were awesome because they told you everything you needed right in the title of the book, okay? So here's what he said. He said, okay, if you want to deal with something like pride, there's two ways to deal with it. One is you can try and stop being prideful. Like you've been made aware of how prone you are to pride. You start to see it in your life. You want to get off the seesaw. You can just like try and stop being prideful. He says, that's not really bad. That's actually a good heart motive. I, wanna, I don't want to give into this foundational element of the world. I'm going to stop. He said, but the problem is that is really hard to do. It's hard to just stop being prideful and focusing yourself on not doing something because humans are created to focus on something else, right? We're created to focus or the way Chalmers would say it, we're created to worship. Right? So instead of your just stopping your affection being on yourself, what Chalmers says is you need to change what you're looking at. You do still need to look at something. It doesn't say close your eyes, but change your sight. He says, fix your eyes, Hebrews 12, on Jesus. Don't just stop looking, change what you're looking at. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, or to give you Jesus's own words. How do you fight pride in your life? It's not just pushing against pride. It's abiding in Jesus. Make your home in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. You want to fight pride in your life. Abide in Jesus. What does that mean? That means, man, you make your, the, the actual translation is make your home in. That means today, and then again tomorrow, and then again the next day, you start first with receiving all those promises we talked about in verses 10 through 15. You make your home in there. You make that the point of your focus of your time in the word in the morning is thank you, God, for what you have done for me. Lord, help me to walk out of acceptance, not for it. That's abiding in Jesus. Lord, help me look for what you are doing in another person's life instead of 
focusing on how that person is thinking about my life because I'm abiding in Jesus. I'm secure in him. I'm enough in him. Abide in Christ. The best thing for your fight against pride is to become intensely focused and desperately needy for God. Cling to him, run to him. Hebrews uh, 4 calls where Christ is seated, calls it the throne of grace. Go to the throne of grace and cling to it. Don't leave it. And if you're not a Christian, this is, I want you to see, this is who we are. We are not religious elites. In our pride, sometimes we go there. Sometimes we go there because we think we're awesome. And sometimes we focus on ourselves because we think we're awful. But who we actually are is we are easily deceived beggars with nothing to bring, but we have found acceptance through Jesus Christ. And God extends that acceptance to you as well. The invitation is open to all who will receive it. In fact, that's how I want to close. I want to lead us in a time of prayer uh, at all three of our campuses. If you would, this is going to be a time for you to respond to God. If you bow your head and get into a posture of prayer, and I'll lead you through this prayer. First to the Christian, this is a moment for you to confess your pride to God. To confess where you have judged others and where you have been looking for acceptance and approval from others. Instead of finding that acceptance and approval in Christ. And would you just confess that to God and then thank him? When you go to God in prayer, remember the story Jesus tells of the father with his arms outstretched running towards the prodigal son who's coming home. That's who you're going to in prayer. God the father who welcomes you back as you confess your sin, not judging you by what you have done, by what Christ has done, saying, welcome home, son, daughter. Receive him. Receive that embrace. And if you're not a Christian, as these Christians are praying and responding to God and celebrating who they are in Christ, their acceptance, that offer of forgiveness and acceptance is extended to you this morning. It's a simple prayer you can pray in your own heart and mind where you say something like, God, I recognize I am a sinner. I've sinned. We all have. I've been looking for acceptance from anybody but you. And today, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe acceptance in your eyes comes through what he did on the cross for me. And so I receive forgiveness. I believe Jesus died for me. I receive the forgiveness he won for me. I receive new life because I believe he rose again. You tell him, thank you, God, for saving me. Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel. That it's not just the front door that Jesus opens for us, but the whole house. We can only dive deeper into it. You're so good. Would we, the same way that we received him, as Paul tells us, would we also walk in him, thankful 
in awe, celebrating, humbled, worshipful. Would that be our posture this afternoon and tomorrow morning and the next day? But we need you for that. I pray, Father, this would be a grateful church, humbled by who you are, grateful you've brought us home to you, and eager that our community would get off that seesaw of needing acceptance and would instead walk, walk with you. Help us today, and we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.